Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. So um, I'm here to speak on God, creation, and the act of existence. Um, I didn't choose this title. I won't say the ch title chose me. I was basically told, could you speak about this? And I thought, well, yeah, sure. I've published two books on the issue, and I kind of, I'm engaged with that sort of stuff. So yeah, why not? So what I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to talk about Aquinas' metaphysical thought and how he you know, comes up with this distinction between essence and existence and that whole issue of essence and existence. And then I'm going to point out about how existence or the act of existence is the unifying theme in Aquinas' metaphysics. See, if you're trying to understand St. Thomas's metaphysics, understand the act of existence. Understand what he means by the act of existence. See, once you understand that, that's it. You're golden. It's like understanding Plato's theory of forms. Once you've understood the forms, you've got Plato. You can open any platonic dialogue and you can situate yourself once you've got the theory of forms. So it's Aquinas on the act of existence. You will have broken the back of Thomistic metaphysics once you have that. Um, so I'm going to talk about that, how that's a unifying theme, how, how that leads him to the affirmation of God's existence, and how that has implications for the metaphysics of creation. Is that okay? Yeah? Good, because I don't have anything else for you. So, great. Right, let's get into it. So, that's Thomas, by the way. Okay, that's Aquinas. Right. Now, in the past, Thomists, they've tended to locate uh, Aquinas in one of kind of the ancient schools of thought. So you have these ancient schools of thought. Uh, you've got the Platonists, the Aristotelians, the Neoplatonists, you know, the Avicennian Augustinians and all of that. Anybody who's read Fernand van Steenbergen's big work on uh, philosophy in the 13th century tries to locate all these 13th century philosophers and theologians within some school of thought as if these thinkers weren't original. In themselves, they couldn't have been original. They must have been Aristotelians or Neoplatonists or whatever. And past Thomas scholarship tended to do that. The more and more work that's being undertaken now by contemporary Thomists, it's pointing out that when we look at Aquinas' thought as a whole, when we look at his systematic thought, um, he was quite an original thinker in his own right. There are aspects of his thinking which are irreducible to the traditions that he inherited. Everybody comes up within a philosophical tradition. That's fine. But it's what you do with that and how you progress beyond that philosophical tradition that makes you an original thinker. And perhaps in the past, uh, historians of philosophy, and Thomists in particular, wanted to try and situate Thomas within a particular school of thought. Whenever Thomas doesn't belong in any other school of thought, but Thomas's school of thought, his own school of thought. And... Um, uh, this is, this is particularly relevant to the act of existence because the more and more contemporary scholars have been researching Aquinas on the act of existence, the more they realize that Aquinas was an original thinker in his own right. His whole metaphysics of essay, 
or the active existence is irreducible to the influences that came before him. Now you can see Platonic and Aristotelian elements in his views on the active existence, but his views are reducible to neither. Now undoubtedly Aquinas was influenced by Aristotle. Okay, we can't deny that. He was definitely in in influenced by Aristotle. And Aristotle's hylomorphism read through the lens of Avicenna. Okay, so there's definitely an Avicennian colouring to Aquinas' hylomorphism, but his hylomorphism is apparent on nearly every page of his metaphysics. You're always going to get Aquinas' hylomorphic theory coming in. You even get it in his ethical thought, all right? So it, it, it's kind of there throughout. It permeates everything. Okay, now this hylomorphic position, so as is well known, Aristotle came up with hylomorphism to account for change to account for how change can occur. So Aristotle's you know, faced with this st standoff of Heraclitus and Parmenides. So you've got Heraclitus advocating for the flux of being. Flux is what's central, and stability emerges out of the flux. And then you've got Parmenides saying, no, 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 no. Being is what is primary. And being is, and non-being is not. Being is, and non-being is not. And we can't sort of confuse the two of them. And if we can't confuse being and non-being, then we can't really say being is becoming because becoming requires some kind of non-being in order to occur. The thing that becomes is not what it becomes, and when it becomes something, it ceases to be what it was. And for Parmenides, we're kind of mixing up being and non-being when we do that, so we need to deny, to, to deny non-being uh, and thus becoming, and just affirm that everything is being. So being is just like this big sphere that just encompasses everything, and Aristotle's met with this problem of the one and the many, flux versus stability. And what he does is he proposes uh, his hylomorphic theory in order to account for the, uh, the possibility of becoming. So as is well known, in any process of change, there's some underlying matter, prime matter, that loses some form and gains another form. Prime matter is always formed, but when the process of change occurs, it loses the one form and gains another. So the prime matter allows for there to be continuity during a process of change, and change occurs through transformation of the prime matter. And that's how Aristotle gets around that. Now, the upshot of this account is that Aristotle, he can affirm change. That's fine. He can affirm the fundamentality and the reality of change. Change is not an illusion. Change is real. Um, and there is no break in being, so we don't face all the Parmenidean restrictions on change. Um, but also, in offering an analysis of change, um, Aristotelian hylomorphism gives us a metaphysical account of how substances are constituted. So a process of change, as long as it's not accidental change, a process of change ends up with the substance, okay, as the end product. And so our, Aristotle's analysis of change gives us an account of... Uh, high substances are constituted. So A brackets material substance for Aristotle is composed of matter and form. So matter and form are the two metaphysical components or principles by which you have a material substance. So a, mere, a material substance is a formed particular. It's a particular individual that has some sort of form. And matter and form for Aristotle, they're related as potency and act. So the matter stands in potency to be actualized by the form, and the form actualizes the potentiality of matter. Not only that, the form's actualization of matter is restricted to the confines of matter. It can actuate no more and no less the potentiality that matter already has to be actualized. So the actualization work that form can perform on matter is restricted to the, cope, the, the, the scope of the material conditions.
In other words, matter individuates the form that actualizes it, okay? Because form can only actualize matter to such and such a degree. So it's individuated by the matter that it actualizes. So in this view, we have a composite of matter and form, okay? And that's an individual substance. Uh, that individual substance then um, has two metaphysical components, the matter and the form. Matter is the most fundamental principle of potency. There's no more fundamental principle of potency than matter for Aristotle. Correspondingly, the most fundamental principle of actuality is that which actuates matter, which is form. So the, mo the most fundamental principles of act and potency for Aristotle are form and matter. We don't get beyond those. There's nothing of greater potency than matter and there's nothing of greater actuality than form. And that sort of, you know, is the Aristotelian hylomorphic view. We okay so far? Woo, we went in at the deep end, didn't we? There we go. So there's Aristotle's Metaphysics 101. So if you're reading the Metaphysics book Zeta, you know, that's kind of a basic proceed of it. Right, enter Aquinas. Here he is. What is Aquinas going to add to this? Right, at the very beginning of his career, Aquinas writes a little work called the De Antiaedicentia. He's about 30 at the time, okay? He's a Dominican student at Saint-Jacques in Paris. And um, he's basically, you know, studying to become a master of theology. And his fellow students at Saint-Jacques, they don't understand our metaphysics. They don't get it. So what do they do? They go to the doctoral student in the house and they say, listen, can you help us? We can't go to Albert de Great here. Well, he wouldn't have been Albert de Great. He would have been Albert, all right? We can't go to Albert. You know, he's the boss. Thomas, can you help us out? Okay, is that how Dominican houses work? You don't go to the boss, you go to the next one up? Okay, Dominicans are kind of, you know, neither confirm nor deny, right? Okay, so they go to Thomas and they say, listen, we're not getting this. We just don't get it. Can you help us out here? So he writes the De Antietesensia, and in this De Antietesensia, he's about 30 years, 30 years old at the time, he explains, among other things, matter, form, and essence, okay? Once he does that, having dealt in the early chapters with essence as it's found in material things, he turns to essence as it's met with in immaterial things, okay? So let's say we could have immaterial things. We're not saying that we do have immaterial things, but if we have an account of essence, it's going to have, in principle, to be able to be applied to immaterial things. If we have a metaphysics, it has to at least, in principle, apply to any possible being, material or immaterial, even if immaterial beings don't exist. So his account of essence is going to have to apply to immaterial things, but he's met with a puzzle. He's met with a puzzle here. If we assume an Aristotelian ontology, matter and form, matter the most basic principle of potency, form the most fundamental principle of actuality, immaterial things, because they're without matter, they're immaterial, they have no matter. So they have no potency, they're pure form. Okay? If they have no potency, because they have no matter, they're pure form, they're pure actuality. They're per se actual because they have no corresponding principle of potency. And as pure actuality then, they're on a par with God. So we have, you know, possible immaterial beings which are pure actuality and they're on a par with God. Problem, all right? Because, I mean, how could you have all these various immaterial creatures um, which would be pure actuality and how would we distinguish them from God? What is the potency which could distinguish them from God? 30 years old when he's writing this, okay, so 30 years old. They come to him and ask him for this, and he produces one of the most original metaphysical treatises in the history of Western philosophy. So here we are, there's St. Michael. That's pretty cool, isn't it? 
I like that. I'm going to get that tattooed on me someday. You know, it does look awesome. Right. So we have a problem here. Let's say we have immaterial objects, angels, separate substances, platonic forms, whatever. Right. They're without matter. They're without potency, but they're pure actuality. But we're hesitant to say that these are pure actuality because that would put them on a par with God. How do we deal with that? How do we account for the potency that they have, their ability not to be? So what Thomas does here at this point, this is chapter four of the Deente. He recalls a, a very popular view known as universal hylomorphism. So remember, hylomorphism is the view of matter-form composition, that things are composed of matter and form. Well, universal hylomorphism is the view that everything, no matter what, if it has some potency to it, it's composed of matter and form. So even separate substances, even immaterial things like angels or platonic forms, or mathematical numbers or whatever, are composed of matter and form. That's, that's what universal hylomorphism holds. So what the universal hylomorphists hold is that there's two different types of matter. There's bodily or corporeal matter, and that's the sort of the stuff that you can touch, the bodily stuff that's extended in three-dimensional space. But there's incorporeal matter, and the incorporeal matter is the stuff that constitutes our immaterial things. They're not properly called immaterial, they're properly called incorporeal. Okay, that's what the universal hylomorphists believe. So they're not really immaterial, they're just incorporeal, but they do have a funny type of matter, just a matter that you can't touch and isn't extended in three-dimensional space. So um, these immaterial substances, angels, numbers, platonic forms, they're not pure actuality. Why? Because they have incorporeal matter. Okay, that's what kind of takes away their pure actuality-ness. All right, so that's what sort of delimits their being pure actuality. They have an element of potency, which is incorporeal matter. And Thomas attributes the origination of this position to this dude here, Abbas Braun, or even Gabriel. Okay, Jewish thinker um, in the Fons Vitae, he seems to be the originator of the, that view. I haven't went into the scholarly sort of issues here in too much detail, but I haven't found an earlier representative of universal hylomorphism. As soon as I say that, somebody's going to correct me, okay? But at least I haven't in my experience. I'm not saying there isn't an earlier one. I, I just haven't been able to find one. So that's what Thomas is contending with. He rejects universal hylomorphism. He doesn't buy it, okay? Well, one reason why he doesn't buy it, he thinks it's a bit ad hoc. Okay, right, you're met with a problem here. What do you do? Well, well, yeah, they're incorporeal matter. That's what they've got. Okay, let's, let's have this incorporeal matter here. He thinks this is a wee bit talk, uh, talk. you know, look, immaterial things are immaterial because they don't have matter. If that causes a problem for their actuality or lacking in any potency, don't just come up with some, you know, incorporeal matter to explain that. Try to think the position through. Um, he also rejects universal hylomorphism because it would conflict with another commitment of his, which is the unity of substantial form. Thomas holds that whenever a form informs prime matter, it produces a substance. So as soon as you have a form informing prime matter, you've got a substance. Any form after that modifies that substance in some way. So any form after the initial form that informs prime matter is an accidental form. Now, if we think with the universal hylomorphists that there is prime matter, and then that's formed either as corporeal or incorporeal matter, things which are corporeal, would have a form making them corporeal. So it's called a corporeal form. This is something that Avicenna seems to be subscribed to. And then on top of their corporeal form, they have their substantial form, making them the particular kind of thing that they are. 
So there's going to be a plurality of forms then in the thing constituting the substance. Thomas, he, he doesn't buy that. He rejects that. That once you have matter as formed, you have a form substance. Everything after that is an accidental form. So on the universal hylomorphosis view, when we have some form on top of the corporeal form, say the thing's substantial form making it a human, the human being would only be accidentally human. He would be substantially a corporeal thing and then only accidentally the type of corporeal thing that he is. So Thomas rejects that. Universal hylomorphism conflicts with that metaphysical commitment of his. Now, in rejecting universal hylomorphism, Thomas needs to account for the principle of potency of things because he can't be holding that, you know, these possible immaterial creatures um, are pure actuality. Okay, he doesn't really affirm that. He needs to say that there's some potency to them for them to be creatures. So how is he going to account? What alternative account to their potency is he going to give? The alternative view he holds is that there's a more fundamental principle of actuality than form, and there's a more fundamental principle of potency than matter. So beyond matter and form, we've got even more fundamental components of the thing. Um, so matter and form are just subsidiary components of potency and actors, even more fundamental principles of potency and act. The most fundamental principle of potency, according to Aquinas, is essence. Essence is the most fundamental principle of potency, and it stands in potency to existence, esse, the act of existence, which is the most fundamental principle of actuality. So Thomas, moving beyond Aristotle's hylomorphism, then holds that Yes, thing, material things are constituted of matter and form, but that only designates their essence, right? That in itself, that essence, stands in potency to an act of existence. Okay, so even the essence now stands in potency to the act of existence. We're beyond Aristotle here. For Aristotle, the most fundamental principle of act is form. Beyond form, there's no more fundamental principle of actuality. Do you know who we're dealing with now? Do you know whose intuitions we're dealing with? We're dealing with the Neoplatonists. Okay, because the Neoplatonists, in thinking beyond Plato and Aristotle, held that even beyond form, there's a more fundamental principle of reality which grounds form. There's a supra-formal principle on the basis of which even form is something real, something in being. So if we think of Plotinus, we've got the one, we've got the noose, and we've got the soul. The forms are located in the mind of noose. But even more fundamental than this is the one of which every form is an imitation. We go back to Plato in the Republic. You know, we've got the divided line and, you know, we've got the shadows, we've got the objects, and we've got the forms of the objects. But what's beyond the forms? The good. The good. There's a principle even beyond the forms in which the forms participate for the reality. Thomas is thinking the same sort of thing here. There's something even beyond form which accounts for the actuality of form. And this is what Thomas calls the act of existence or essay. This is why I think Thomas was a Neoplatonist at heart. Okay, he uses an Aristotelian terminology, but fundamentally Neoplatonism through and through. Okay, all things then that have any sort of potency whatsoever are subject to essence, existence, distinction, and composition. The potency of things is accounted for on the basis of this distinction between essence and existence. And things which have potency then are actualized by the uh, the act of existence. So the most fundamental distinction in Thomistic metaphysics is this between essence and existence. Again, 30 years old people, all right? So very beginning of his career. That, that me. I, I wrote a book on this when I was in my mid-30s. Yeah, 2015, eight years ago, early 30s, I'm 39 now. Yeah, 
writing a book on one paragraph of one chapter of a tiny little treatise by Aquinas. Okay, haven't finished my PhD. He's in his PhD years just writing this because somebody asked him to. All right, we're doing well? Ready to keep going? Brilliant, right. Distinction between essence and existence. Let's get into it. This is the good stuff, right. Throughout his career, throughout from start from the day into right up to the end, Thomas offers us several different arguments for the distinction of essence and existence. And that, that is throughout. You'll find this in every stage of his career. He offers argumentation for distinction of essence and existence. Now, the argumentation that I find compelling myself and that I've engaged with quite a bit is the argument from the Antiedicentia, chapter 4. Okay, this is the argument that I find very compelling. And this argumentation is drawn from the uniqueness of something whose essence is its existence. Okay, so it's drawn from this idea that something whose essence is identical to its existence would be absolutely unique. Notice the subjunctive there, would be absolutely unique. So Thomas is not committed to the actual existence of such a thing just yet. When this argument kicks off, he asks us to entertain the hypothesis of something whose essence is its existence. He says, just, just, just think of, you know, the thought of something whose essence is its, its existence. Now let's analyze that conceptually, okay? What would it be like? What would the features of it be, regardless of whether or not it actually exists? What would the features of it be? He's doing conceptual analysis. Doesn't make him an analytic philosopher, okay? But he's doing conceptual analysis here. And he's asking, what can we affirm about this, even if we don't know that it exists, right? And he's going to argue that it's absolutely unique. As pure, so its essence is identical to its existence. So Thomas holds it's going to be pure existence itself. If its essence is just essay or existence, it's just pure existence itself, nothing else. Thomas argues that if that's what it is, then there's nothing independent of it to which it could stand as subject, which would multiply it. There's no principle of multiplicity which would multiply something which is pure existence. This is because if it's pure existence, anything which exists other than it derives its existence from it. Other than it, there is nothing, okay? It's pure existence, other than it, there is nothing. So if there is anything other than it, it's an effect of it. It's gonna draw its existence from it. So any principle which could multiply this thing would be an effect of it. And so it wouldn't stand in potency to that principle. So Thomas goes through a lot of the different ways in which things could be multiplied. And, and this is in Deante chapter four. So he says, you know, take the way a genus is multiplied into a species. You've got the genus animal multiplied into a species human. How does that multiplication occur? Well, we have some differentiating feature which specifies the genus. So humans are rational animals. Um, whereas, you know, horses are equine animals and dogs are canine animals. I don't like using the example of cats because cats aren't animals, they're demonic, okay? So, yeah, so we don't have any cat lovers here. Nobody's admitting to be a cat lover after that, all right? So, but anyway, all right, so the genus is multiplied into these species of animals by the addition of a differentiating feature. The differentiating feature is outside the genus and it multiplies it. Now, something which is pure existence, there's nothing outside of it. So there's no differentiating feature outside of it which can multiply it. So like that kind of multiplication doesn't apply. He also 
takes the example of, well, look, maybe a, spe a species, the way it's multiplied in distinct chunks of matter. So we've got the species human, and we have all the distinct chunks of matter in which the species human is multiplied right here, right now, yeah? Um, Thomas again considers, well, if something is pure existence, it couldn't be multiplied in that way, because not only, again, would you have something independent of it, multiplying it, which can't be the case, but also anything which is material subsists in its matter, whereas something which is pure existence doesn't subsist in anything but itself, okay? It exists in virtue of itself, so it can't subsist in anything other than itself. We subsist in matter. See when our matter decomposes, it slides out, okay? That's the end of it. Okay, once our matter is gone, that's us. We don't subsist in virtue of what we are. We subsist in virtue of our matter and all our material conditions. But something which is pure existence isn't like that because its essence is its existence. So it subsists in virtue of what it is. So it can't be multiplied materially. Now, Thomas still isn't committed to the existence of this. He's just conceptually analyzing the idea of this. But notice something. If he were to offer a proof for the existence of this sort of thing, He's already shown that it can't be multiplied, there couldn't be more than one of them in principle, and that it's immaterial. Wouldn't it be dead handy then if he followed it up with a proof of such a thing? So you would have a unique immaterial principle of all existing things? That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Okay, obviously he does that, okay? That's what he does later. Right, okay. Now this is where my computer free, ah, here we are. Okay, so if there's nothing independent of that whose essence is its existence, which can multiply it, then pure existence itself is such that in principle it can't be multiplied. It's a conceptual truth about it that it would be one and unique, regardless of whether or not it exists. Now remember, don't get sidetracked, right? We still need an argument for the distinction of essence and existence. Okay, I remember when I first read this, I'm like, where is he going with this? Why is he getting into this? I thought we were on essence and existence. You know, what's he doing with this? And I can imagine the brothers at St. Jack reading this going, we asked Brother Thomas for an intro to metaphysics, you know, look at this. We should have gone with Brian Davies, you know, that would have been better, you know. So, um, yeah, don't get sidetracked, all right? Thomas still needs to give us an argument for the distinction of essence and existence. But one of the things that we know from this is that pure essay, pure existence, must be one and unique. That's a conceptual truth about it, regardless of whether it exists. If pure essay is one and unique, then anything which isn't one and unique is not something whose essence is its existence. Ooh. If something is not one and unique, it's not something whose essence is its existence. Put another way, if you have multiple things, then those multiple things are not pure essay. They're not things in which essence and existence are identical. So he establishes that it's a conceptual truth about pure existence itself that it must be one and unique. And we don't even know if it exists yet. It's just a conceptual truth. It would be impossible for there to be more than one such thing. So if we have things of which there are more than one, i.e. things capable of being multiplied because they're made out of matter or whatever, then such things are not pure essay itself. They're not things in which essence and existence are identical. 
And if they're not things in which essence and existence are identical, they are things in which essence and existence are distinct. Yes, 10 points. Right, okay, he gets the first glass of wine, all right? So, so if we have real multiple things, then in those real multiple things, there's distinction of essence and existence. And this is where I think Thomas establishes the real distinction between essence and existence. Ed Fieser disagrees with me, okay, but he's wrong, it's all right. So, right. so no, Ed Fieser, Ed Fieser holds it that it's at a different, that it's an earlier stage where Thomas does that. But this is distinction of essence and existence, de ante chapter four. So Thomas here has achieved what he set out to achieve with regards to the principle of potency and the principle of actuality. If he can show that essence and existence are distinct in things, then in real multiple things, we have a fundamental principle of potency, which is essence, and a fundamental principle of actuality, which is the act of existence. But we're not done, okay? We're only 10 slides in, all right? 10 slides in of a 28-slide program. Don't worry, I'll fly through the rest of it. It's all fine. Everything falls into place after that, right? Essence, existence, composition. Essence bears the same relationship to the act of existence that matter bears to form, all right? So, so what Thomas has taken from Aristotle is that potency-act relationship that matter and form has to each other, and he just transferred it over to essence and existence. So he's introduced the essence-existence distinction and composition, but retained the Aristotelian act-potency framework. SA, the act of existence, that's the principle by means of which essence is actualized, okay? Essence has no actuality without the act of existence. Uh, and with the composition of essence and existence, we have some being existing in reality. This, Aquinas holds, is what Aristotle missed out in his metaphysics of substance. He missed out on the act of existence. A substance being an existing thing has to have an act of existence which actuates its essence. Okay, so essay then is the principle of actuality without which there would be nothing. It makes the thing something rather than nothing. It doesn't just make it a kind of thing. It doesn't just configure its matter. It makes it something rather than nothing. Um, insofar as essay is the principle of actuality, it's the principle of actuality, the act of all acts. Okay, that's a quote from St. Thomas. Essay is the act of all acts. Um, then it stands in potency to nothing. There's nothing more fundamental than essay because once you go beyond essay, the act of existence, you're into nothingness. There's nothing beyond it. So you bottom out at essay, at the act of existence. Again, very Neoplatonic because the Neoplatonists wanted a fundamental principle, okay, which just bottoms out their ontology, beyond which you can't go. For Plotinus, it was the one. But Thomas sort of sees, well, look, even with some sort of super formal principle like the one, we still need something which accounts for it being something rather than nothing. Yes, everything that exists is a unit, and so there has to be some sort of principle of unity. That's not the one, okay? That, that was Plotinus' view, that the one is the principle of unity. Thomas like, no, it's not the one, it's, you know, the act of existence. That's what unifies everything and grants actuality to things. So essay is the act of all acts, and in other circumstances, he says, it's the perfection of all perfections. Because if all actuality is found within essay, then everything is complete, made complete through essay. So it's what perfects everything, the perfection of all perfections, not just the actuality of all actualities. Okay, so check it out. Right, so five animals here. 
Those who know, know. Does anybody know what these five animals are? No? Go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, well, at least these two are. Yeah, I had to put in five. So I'm giving the example about how, you know, different types of things have specific acts of existence. The act of existence of a praying mantis is not the same act of existence as a viper or a tiger or a monkey or a crane. Okay, so the, the point that I'm going to get into is that the act of existence is limited by the essence which receives it. In the same way as form is limited by matter, the act of existence is limited by the essence that receives it. Now, you're right. These five animals are from Kung Fu Panda, but why are they in Kung Fu Panda? Because in Shaolin Kung Fu, there are five animal styles, and these are those. I do Kung Fu, okay? So I had to put these in, all right? So these are the ones I had to put in. I do Mantis and Tiger Kung Fu, okay? So um, they're the two styles of Kung Fu that I do, yeah. So I never got a chance to do it in the cage. I've done several, you know, fights in the cage. Never got a chance to do my Mantis stuff, but it's there anyway. So I had to get these in. These need to go in. When I give, when I give my um, paper uh, at the ACPA in New Orleans, and Daniel's there, he knows, I got a cage up on the screen, didn't I, Daniel? I got to put in, you know, an MMA reference. So my students always say, get a martial arts reference into every public lecture. You have to. You need to do it. So you guys got me at the last minute. You didn't get the martial arts reference. Okay, I had to just churn that out. But with this, I put some thought into it. So five animal styles. Right. Ready to get back into metaphysics again? It can get a bit intense, can't it? Yeah. Right. So we have the act of existence, right? The actuality the form conveys is limited by the matter, okay? It, it, you know, it actualizes the matter to the degree that matter can be actualized. So matter delimits the scope of form. Well, it's the same for the act of existence. The essence which is actuated by the act of existence delimits the scope of that act of existence. So my being is that of a human being. My act of existence is that of a human and not of a viper or a mantis, you know, despite being able to imitate its fighting style and all the rest. Yeah. So if you have an essence which is individuated by matter, which in turn has an act of existence, that act of existence is of the individual essence or of the individual who has the essence. So my act of existence is mine and not yours. My daughter's act of existence is hers and not mine. When I lose my act of existence, assuming that I will lose my act of existence, which I won't, as I argue in a paper forthcoming in the ACPQ, hopefully, um, that you know human beings are unique because they don't lose their act of existence at death. But let's say, if I do lose my act of existence, God willing, my daughter will not lose hers at the same time. She'll keep hers even if I lose mine. My act of existence doesn't impact hers other than accidentally, okay? Now, yes, I'm her father, I play a role in her life, but that's not responsible for her act of existence, okay? So things have an individual act of existence, individuated act of existence, and all this stems from a principle that Thomas endorses that unreceived act or actuality is unlimited that unless actuality is received by some distinct principle of potency, that actuality is unlimited. It's the potency which, which the actuality actualizes which limits the scope of that potency. So my act of existence makes me exist no more and no less. 
If there were some part of me not actualized by that act of existence, it would be nothing and thus not a part of me. So my act of existence just actualizes me completely, no more and no less. Same for you and same for every individual that exists, including Master Mantis and Monkey and all up there. Right. So an individual existent is a composite of essence and existence. It's composed. It's a composite union of the two. The composite doesn't possess the act of existence to its full universality. It's only an individual limited act of existence that it has. So it just participates in its act of existence. <gasps> Participation. Mythixis. Remember what Aristotle had to say about participation and the Platonists and the metaphysics? He was like, no, 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 no. The Pythagoreans, they talk about how reality is an imitation of numbers. The Platonists, they talk about participation. They've just changed about the words, but they've got no more clarity than the Pythagoreans. You know, Aristotle's biting comments against the Platonists. See the exact passage where Aristotle, you know, really just is very sarcastic about the Platonists. When Thomas is commenting on that, he comes to their rescue. He comes to the Platonists' rescue. And he says, well, look, what the Platonists meant by participation was this, which I'm going to tell you is about, okay? Thomas gives a definition of participation, what it means to participate. And in his commentary on the De Hebdomadibus of Boethius, Thomas gives, you know, a straight up definition of participation and the different kinds of participation that we can have. A definition of participation which to my knowledge and to the knowledge of you know the sort of the scholars writing about this we can't find any other definition before Thomas he seems to have been the first to give this definition so um, Louis Bertrand Geiger who wrote a book on participation in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas points out that there just doesn't seem to be any historical prelude to this and what Thomas defines participation as is the possession of some kind of actuality which universal in itself is possessed individually, okay? Some sort of actuality which whilst universal in itself is possessed individually, and then possessing it individually, one participates in that actuality. So Thomas holds that insofar as esse, the act of existence, is possessed in a limited fashion by the essence, the essence participates in its act of existence. So we have a participation framework here. We started out with an act potency framework. We still have it, but now it's been integrated to within a participation framework. We see Aristotle and well, Aristotelianism and Platonism come together. And then we treat us called the De Substantis uh, Separatis. Thomas actually argues in one of the chapters that um, Aristotle's act potency distinction is really the same as the Platonic participation framework. There is no real difference between the two of them, which is quite interesting. All right, so that's essence and existence. Now we get to the good stuff, the meaty stuff. The peraliate is reducible to the per se. This is this principle that the peraliate is, is reducible to the per se. We're going to fly through this stuff, okay? It's really exciting stuff, but we're just going to fly through it. What does Thomas mean by this? What does he mean here? Composites of essence and existence, they have existence, the act of existence, in a participated sense, okay? So they don't have existence essentially. They don't have existence per se. They have it through an other, per aliud, or per participationem. So it's not something that they have in themselves. They have it through something else. Okay, what does it mean to possess the act of existence through something else? It means to possess it in a derived fashion. All right? It means to possess it in a non-intrinsic fashion. I don't have the act of existence in the way that I have the ability to laugh. 
This is an argument that he makes in the Deinte. I have the ability to laugh. Why? Because I'm a rational animal. I can get a joke. Okay, I can't really, right? So I can get a joke and I can laugh, all right? So that's something that I have because of what I am. But I don't have the active existence in virtue of what I am because essence and existence are distinct. They're non-identical. The active existence actualizes the essence, so you can't have the active existence flowing from the essence in the way that my risability flows from my essence. So I possess the active existence extrinsically. There's some extrinsic principle or other through which I possess the active existence. Now, what about that extrinsic principle? Okay, what about that other from which I have the active existence? Does it have existence per se or per allude? And if it has a peralute, what about the other through which it has its active existence? In other words, Thomas is setting up a causal regress here in the order of the active existence. We have a cause of the existence of the thing. Well, what about the existence of that cause? And what about the existence of that cause? And so on, and so on, and so on. So he's setting up this causal regress in the order of existence. And how does he terminate it? Well, the way in which he terminates it is by considering per se ordered series, or essentially ordered series. The Metaphysics Society are groaning right now, okay, you got like 45 minutes of this earlier, right? So essentially ordered series or per se ordered series. Thomas uses the terminology of per se ordered series, where at Oxford, SCOTUS used the terminology of essentially ordered series. There are distinct metaphysical differences between how Thomas and SCOTUS conceived of these series, um, but not much rides on that terminology, okay? But it's just so you know, I mean, SCOTUS is the essentially ordered series terminology. So, we distinguish two types of causal series, right? We have two kinds of causal series, two ways in which causal series are ordered, per accidents or accidentally ordered, and per se. Now, in per accidents causal series, the members of the series possess the causality of the series in question, essentially. They have the causality of the series in virtue of what they are. So they have it, essentially, given what they are. And the example which is usually offered here is fathers producing sons. So we have a series of fathers producing sons. Peter fathers James and James fathers John. And John fathers whomever and Peter is fathered by whomever, right? So the causality at work here is paternity, okay? Peter is exercising his paternity in fathering James and James is exercising his paternity in fathering John, right? How is Peter able to exercise his paternity? How is he able to do it? Well, because he's a biologically functioning male. Okay, so being a biologically functioning male, he is able to do what needs to be done to father a child, right? And James is able to do the same with John. Now notice something there. When Peter fathers James, when Peter brings about James, right? That's it, he doesn't need to do anything more. His causal activity is done. His action as a cause in that series is complete. Once James has been fathered, Peter can drop out of the series, okay? James, in order to father John, okay, Peter's grandson, he doesn't need Peter's help. Okay, he doesn't need Peter to help him to father John. That would be weird, okay? If James needed his father's help to father his own child. That, that, no, just don't go there. That doesn't happen, right? So... You know, the example I gave earlier, right, we're teaching some Irish slang here, okay? Have we heard of wetting the baby's head? Wetting the baby's head? 
it's a ritual we perform in Ireland, okay? It's not liturgical, it's not ceremonial. Well, well, it is a ceremony, okay? And it's nothing to do with baptism. When you wet the baby's head, your child is born, you're like, oh yeah, lovely, lovely, brilliant, brilliant. You go out and have drinks, all right? And the drinks is wetting the baby's head. Now you know, okay? Right, now you know. So, don't ask about the crack, all right? So, you just wanna ask about the crack? Okay. Ask afterwards, all right? So, Peter fathers James. James is in the hospital. And it's like, oh, cute, lovely Bobby and everything. Well, yeah, you're getting looked after and every, everybody's fine. Right, you're good. We're golden. I'm going out for a few drinks, right? Peter goes out for a few drinks and unfortunately dies, right? Peter's dead. Peter is gone, right? James grows up without Peter. But can James still father a child? Well, let's hope so. Yeah, because he's fathering John, right? So he's given Peter a grandson. Even Peter's not there. So Peter is not in the series, right? So he's not responsible for his grandson. James is responsible for his grandson. Why? Because in Paraxidon's series, the members of the series possess the causality in themselves. They have it essentially, and in having it essentially, they can continue on the series. This is why the, medie the medievals held, in general, that these sorts of series don't require a first or a last member. They are actually finite, but potentially infinite. Okay, you can have one member coming in, doing his causal duty and dropping out. The next one, doing his causal duty and dropping out. As each prior one drops out, a new one takes its place. So, actually finite, potentially infinite. And that's per accident's ordered series. But by contrast, we have the per se ordered series. And these are the ones, these are the special ones that Thomas focuses on. In per se ordered series, the members of the series do not possess the causality of the series, essentially. They're not like Peter, James, and John with their paternity, which they have in themselves. They don't have the causality of the series essentially here. And the example that is typically, typically given is that the agent moves his hand to move the stick to move the stone. If that sounds familiar to you, you're right, that's from the first way. In the first way, Thomas uses that example. I've replaced it with the golf example here. Anybody play golf? Wonderful. I started playing golf because I got tenure, all right? So, now I've got tenure, I have to play golf. Forget MMA, forget tattoos and all. I'm playing golf. I'm also learning to ride a bike, motorbike, okay? So they're the two things I'm doing now I've got tenure. I am just realized this is being recorded, Brother John, isn't it? The whole Thomistic Institute around the world is getting this. Wonderful. Don't edit that out, okay? I want Thomas Joseph White. Thomas Joseph, do you hear this? Okay. I want people to hear that. Right. So. We have the mental agent. The agent moves his hands to move the golf club to hit the golf ball. In this example, in these examples, the members of the series, they don't have the causality in the series itself. What sort of causality is going on here? Motion, okay? The agent is inducing motion to his hands, to the club, and to the ball. The hands, club, and ball in themselves are just hands, clubs, and ball. They can be hands, clubs, and balls, essentially, without moving. The mental agent induces motion to them so they participate in the causality that the mental agent gives them. Without the mental agent granting them causality, they would be immobile. They wouldn't have the causal actuality of the series in question. So they would, they would be without their causal actuality. And that's what distinguishes per se ordered series, that the members of the series just don't have that causality essentially, so they need a cause for their causality. Another example is the fire heats a pot to heat the contents of the pot. 
the pot and its contents just don't have heat, essentially. So they need to be placed next to a source of heat in which they participate for their heat. Okay, so the hand stick and stone, they're immobile without a cause for their causality. The other, they have their causality, their motion per allude through another, per participationum, the other through which they derive their causality does not possess that causality in a derived sense. So the mental agent doesn't possess motion in a derived sense. The mental agent just is able to get up and go and originate motion given what it is, i.e. mental agent. That's, that's just a feature of agency. Same for the fire. The fire doesn't possess its heat from another source. The fire is the source of heat. It heats essentially, it's able to originate heat and then the things like the pot and the content participated in it from the source of heat. So in per se series, the cause of the causality possesses the causality per se, or through itself, and the members possess it through another. Okay, so that's what I've just said there. All right. Now what all this tells us is that if per se ordered series do not have a cause for their causality, then there's no such series in question. If the hand stick and stone didn't have a cause for their being moved, then they would just be hand sticks and stones. They wouldn't be connected in a causal series unless there's some other source of motion which moves them. So there isn't any sort of causal connection in this series unless you have a cause for the causality which induces that causality into the series. Hence, a primary cause in this sort of series is primary precisely because it's that in which all the members participate for their causality. That's what it is to be a primary cause of such a series. It's not to be first, it means to be fundamental that from which the things derive their causality, and that's what it is to be secondary, to have derivative causality. So what about essay? What about the act of existence? Back to that. Per accidents, per se, ordered series. Per accidents, the members do possess the causality essentially. Per se, they don't possess it essentially. Right, so what about essay? Essay as a type of causality, right? Thomas argues at length that um, things don't possess essay, the act of existence per se, because they're composites of, active, of essence and existence, okay? Existence is distinct from their essence, so they produce it through another. So they have it through another, they have it per allude. So things that exist, they're not members of per accidents ordered series, they're not like fathers who produce sons, they don't have existence in the way that, you know, the fathers have the causality of paternity. Rather, the things that exist, composites of essence and existence, they have existence in the way that the hand, stick and stone have motion, have the actuality of motion. So things that exist, these composites, they possess the act of existence through another, in a participated sense, okay? They participate in another through their existence. They possess essay through another, just like the hand, and stick and stone. They have motion through another. Now recall what we've noted about per se ordered series. Were there not a cause for the causality of that series, okay? There just wouldn't be a series in question. The things would just be lacking in their causality. So were there not, say, a mental agent in the Handstick Stone series, the Handsticks and Stones would be immobile. So similarly then for essay, were there not a primary cause of essay in which essay is located or possessed per se, then things in which essence and essay are distinct just wouldn't have essay. In the same way that it takes a mental agent to originate the motion in the hand, stick and stone, such that without it, hand, stick and stone wouldn't move, so too it takes something in which essay, the act of existence is possessed per se to originate existence 
in things. But what is that? That's something whose essence is its existence. Something whose essence is identical to its existence. The hypothetical thing that Thomas was considering uh, way back at the start when we were looking at multiplication and that, you know, this thing which is pure existence itself would be one and unique. Were that not to cause the existence of everything in which essence and existence are distinct, i.e. were it not to grant existence to things, then things just wouldn't have existence in the same way that the hand, stick and stone would be lacking in motion. So there has to be a primary cause of essay uh, which possesses essay per se. Only four more slides left to go, okay? We're nearly there. I've got about four minutes left, so one minute per slide, okay? I can't go, I can't go off script as much as I want to, right? So we have this primary cause in which essay is located per se, um, and it's something whose essence is its essay, in contrast to things whose essence and existence are distinct. So this primary cause is that hypothetical being that we saw as one, unique, incapable of multiplication, and immaterial. Um, this primary cause then is a single unique cause of all that is, and Thomas reads, well, isn't that what God is? A single unique cause of all that is? You know, if anything else that God is, he's that, at least. Okay, what about creation? Okay, is this thing a creator? Go back to the mind, or to the hand, stick, stone example. The mental agent is the primary cause of the motion of the series. The hand, sticks, and stones, they enjoy motion because of the mental agent. The mental agent is primary with respect to the motion, but he's not absolutely primary because the mental agent is secondary in some other respect. All right, the, the mental agent is secondary with respect to his existence. Primary with regard to motion, secondary with respect to existence. Uh, so a primary cause is primary only with regard to the causality of the series of which it is the primary. So it's primary with regard to motion, perhaps secondary with regard to something else. What about the primary cause of essay? What about the primary cause of existence? Is it only primary with regard to uh, existence, but secondary with regard to something else? Think about that. Is it only primary insofar as it causes existence, but it might be secondary in some other respect? Well, here's how Aquinas deals with that. Essay is that actuality without which there would be nothing, okay? So other than essay, other than the act of existence, there is nothing. If we have a primary cause of existence, okay, of essay, all right? If we have a primary cause of essay, other than that primary cause, there is nothing. Okay, that primary cause is responsible for granting the actuality without which there is nothing. The mental agent in initiating motion in the series, okay, isn't causing something without which there is nothing. Even if it didn't cause motion, there would still be other things in existence, okay, to which it would be subject and causing it. But the primary cause of essay is the cause of that without which there is nothing. So anything that is, other than this primary cause is an effect of it in some way. And if anything that is, is an effect of it in some way, then there is nothing independent of it which could be the cause of it. So in being the primary cause of essay or the act of existence, it's absolutely primary. There's nothing to which it stands in subject that could exercise causal activity over it. So any actuality that is had by anything at all derives its actuality from the actuality of essay, or the act of existence. Motion and heat, they don't exhaust actuality, okay? They're just particular actualities. 
uh, the primary cause of motion or the primary cause of heat. Um, they're only primary in some respect and secondary in others, but the primary cause of SA is absolutely primary because there's nothing independent of it, no actuality um, of which it's not the cause. So it's absolutely primary cause. Now, given that it's absolutely primary, there's nothing of which it is a need to bring things into existence. It doesn't need to bring things into existence because it's absolutely primary. It has no need that it seeks to fulfill. It makes use of nothing in order to originate things. There's nothing that it uses to bring things into existence because it's what grants existence. So the mental agent, the fire, they both make use of things and depend on things in order to bring about their causality. Okay, so their causality is not exercised ex nihilo from nothing, it's exercised from something. The fire needs woo, the mental agent needs things to give motion to. But the primary cause of existence, the primary cause of essay, originates all things that have existence. All things exist, have existence through it, and without which nothing, in which case its causality is ex nihilo. So it is a primary cause of all that is, and its primary causality is exercised you know, from nothing, ex nihilo. It doesn't use anything at all to create or to bring things into existence. But what else is God than a single, unique, okay, immaterial cause of all that is making use of nothing to bring things about, i.e. a creator ex nihilo. So God then on this account is a creator ex nihilo without whom nothing would be. That's what I have for you. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.